broken. He has come to seek and save. Who is this that speaks with power? At his voice, the winds obey. It is Christ, the King of glory, who is life a ransom gave. Bow before him and adore him, Jesus mighty to Despised, rejected, as the sun in darkness hides. Who is this that earth should tremble when he bowed his head and died? Who is this that brings salvation through his death? He brought us life. Good, thanks. All right. Amen. I turned my mic on too early and I said, thanks, hon. Some of you are probably like, why would the preacher say that to that lady? That's my daughter. Okay, so anyway. Yeah, I kind of got ahead of myself there, flipped the mic on too soon. Wow, that was one of those hot mic drops, you know. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. I wonder how loud that came across on the live stream. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, you may have not heard it really because there's so much going on, but, you know, they're just like, huh? All right. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. Matthew chapter 1. Let's just look at verse 21. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. 
And he shall bring forth, she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Willie the parrot, he was, he was extremely talented. I mean, this parrot was really, really something. He was capable of mimicking cat and dog sounds. He could say several words, and he could even whistle the tune of the Andy Griffith Show. When Megan Howard, Willie's owner, took care of her friend's two-year-old, she gave her a Pop-Tart and she left the room for, I don't know, 30, what seemed to be 30 seconds. Maybe it was a little longer even. Within that time, Willie started flapping and shrieking and saying, Mama baby, Mama baby, Mama baby. When Hannah went to see what was wrong, she saw the two-year-old was gasping for air and literally was blue in the face. Choking from that Pop-Tart. It got lodged in that, that little child's throat and that child could not breathe and was gasping for air and Hannah was able to do the Heimlich maneuver and finally the obstruction came out. Willie the parrot was an unlikely hero. An unlikely hero. Last week we began our series by pointing out another unlikely hero. By the name of Jesus Christ. We said his birth brought no fanfare. His life, well, outside the last three years, was lived in obscurity. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. He was despised and rejected of men. And 33 years after he was born, he would hang on a cross in shame, and there he would die. Jesus would seem an unlikely hero. But as we're going to see and as we have already begun, the battle wasn't over. He had just begun to fight. Again, last week we noted this unlikely hero. And we considered his unusual birth. We said that that birth was a part of prophecy. That birth had a peculiar guest list and that birth impacted the whole world. Well, this morning I want to address this thought. An unusual disposition. It's an unlikely, unlikely hero here who had an unusual disposition. And so I want to have a word of prayer, and then we'll consider that for just a few moments this morning. Again, I am just uh, so glad I was able to be a part of the service this morning already as the choir lifted their voices up. And I'll tell you what, I could have hit the altar already. And then as the special comes up and begins to sing and we hear about the Lord of glory, I think, man, I, I don't know how much more I need. But this morning, let's pray that the Lord will continue to walk these aisles and do a work in our hearts and lives, that we may leave here better for having been here. Father, we come to you. We come to you because you are on the throne and you are alive and well. You are our God and you are the only God. Oh, there are gods, little g, in the world, but there is no God like you. You are the one, the only God. You're the creator of all the universe. You're the creator of man and woman and boys and girls. You put us on this celestial globe. And now, Father, we are here to bring glory and honor to you. May we do that this morning as we consider this simple thought. Be glorified in this service and be exalted. You're so worthy of our praise. I pray you fill me with your Holy Ghost and allow me to be your mouthpiece. Lord, I have nothing to offer this thy people except you give it me. And I pray, dear God, that you would just be with every listening ear and may we have spiritual ears to hear exactly what you want for us. 
Every need that's represented here in each individual is uniquely different. But you are a God who can meet every need. Bless us now and meet our needs as we seek to bring glory to you. In Christ's name, amen. Jesus is an unlikely hero. And what an unusual disposition. I mean, he doesn't fit the profile, at least from what I can tell. To start with, as we noted, he lived in obscurity for 30 years. If, if, if he had drawn any attention to himself up to that point, we're not told that in Scripture. We have nothing really to go on. The only time we see Jesus during the first 30 years of his life, we find him in the temple. Turn, if you would, to Luke chapter 2, verse 41. Luke chapter 2, verse 41. In this particular passage, Jesus Christ is 12 years of age. And we're going to see that he had made his way there. His parents, uh, of course, had taken him along with other family and others that traveled with them to Jerusalem to be a part of the feast of the Passover. The Bible says in Luke chapter 2, verse 41, now his parents were, went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. This was not something that they just at the spur of the moment did. They did this consistently, continually. They were, they were, they were disciplined in this. And so now here they go up to Jerusalem to celebrate this Passover. And after the celebration is over, they're going to head back home, only to find that Jesus Christ himself is missing. I mean, it's kind of unusual. You think, well, how in the world would you know your child is missing? Your child's 12 years of age. How's come you didn't know that Jesus wasn't in the pack? Well, because first of all, they traveled with a large group. Secondly, they probably had a number of family and friends, including cousins and uncles and aunts and all kinds of people. And it wasn't like the families were just one or two in that day and age. The families were very large. And as a result of that, there were a number of children and there might be children that hung out with your children. And you'd have thought that they just had known we're leaving it's time to go and everybody gathered up everybody and they all took off and left and pretty soon like some of you've done in the past left your children behind I remember a number of years ago, we had gone, uh, we had started the church, uh, Community Baptist, and we were meeting in the Lake Senior Center, and we were in the basement, and, and I still remember my, my third child, uh, I believe it was, no, it was Caleb, it wasn't, it was Megan, okay, and we had Megan, and I still remember, we got home that day after church, and we all went, where's Megan? We ran on back up to the church, actually drove up, and uh, I didn't run back up, but I drove back up, and sure enough, we unlocked the door, and there she was, little baby in the little playpen. We had left Megan behind. <laughs> It'd be a number of years later, but we all went to a conference one time, and we were all there, and I still remember uh, we had uh, finished up the conference for the morning. We were going back uh, for lunch uh, back at the hotel or for the afternoon, I should say, after lunch. And uh, we all got into the church van. And at that time, uh, uh, Brother Keith and some of us had been over there. And we all loaded up in the van, a number of us. And we're heading on back to the hotel. We get back to the hotel. We're unloading. And all of a sudden, my wife's saying along the way, where's Josh? And I'm like, ah, oh, whatever. Where's Joshua? And I'm like, get out of here. And, and I said, my wife's always lying like that. She's just trying to pull my leg. She's doing one of her deals again. She's always doing that. We get back there and we all unload. 
I'm looking under the seats thinking he must be hiding. She put him up to it. We had left Joshua. We get back in the van. I drive on back there, and there he is, standing out front. Hey! I watched the drive, and I was trying to get your attention. I mean, we can do those kind of things. And in my case, I only have four kids, and I can't imagine how many other children were in this band of people that were traveling to Jerusalem or going now back home. And it happens. The Bible says that they went back to find the missing Jesus and they get then to Jerusalem and there they find their son. And in Luke chapter 2, verse 46 now, it says, And it came to pass that after three days, after three days, they found him in the temple. I often wonder, what was he doing for three days? Did he sleep? I I just wondered, did they have a cot for him? Did he sleep on the ground? what, What did he do? I don't know, but for three days. And they finally found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. Well, over the next 18 years, we're told nothing concerning Jesus Christ. The next time we're introduced to him, he's 30 years old, and his cousin John is preaching. Look, if you would, in John chapter 1, please. You say, his cousin John? Yeah, John the Baptist. It's kind of funny to me, you know, uh, and again, I, I understand why people get this idea, but it, it's kind of funny is that people are always funny, like, oh, huh. hires his family. Oh, yeah. Yeah, using his family. Well, that's what Jesus did. That's what God does. He uses his family. I mean, this is his cousin, John the Baptist, right? And you got Jesus. And then you got all these other people throughout that are coming through, these disciples and stuff that are all kind of related to one another. They know each other and all kind of stuff like that. Listen, there's nothing wrong with that. You got a business today. Can I encourage you? Use your family. If you raise them right, they'll make good employees. And you'll know exactly what you got. You don't have to guess then. Some said, I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. That's not fair. Oh, it's certainly fair. Why wouldn't it be fair? Well, we, I don't agree with that. That's why I don't agree with me. But in the Bible, you're going to notice that there's a lot of family that gets used here. People are using family all the time. It's a good thing if they're raised right. Now, if you don't raise your kids well, I wouldn't put them in charge of the business. Right? If they don't know how to handle money, don't do it. If they, if they don't get up on time and get to work on time, eh, I, th- I think I'll hire somebody else. But if they're just as good or qualified or even better qualified than others, I don't know. I think I might use them. Man, if I get away with it, I'd use my family a lot more. But you know what? I can't sometimes. Why? Because people don't see things that way. It works in the business world, but it don't work too good in the church. People are kind of funny about church business. But let me tell you something, in the Bible, you'll see a lot of family interrelated, working together to do and fulfill the cause of Christ. Listen, raise your family to work together in the ministry. You work together in that ministry. Raise them to be soul winners and raise them to want to love Jesus Christ and teach the gospel and 
tell the world about Jesus. Man, do that. Work side by side. Go out and knock doors together and, and work in Sunday schools together and be a part of the ministry together on the buses and stuff. Man, use your family. Do that. The only bad part about using family sometimes is when one gets sick, they all get sick, and now you just don't have one or two off the bus. You got the whole bus route off. That makes it rough. That's tough. But that's okay. We'll deal with it, right? If you're actually that good at it. If not, then I guess <laughs> gone. Okay, some visitors around here going, what in the world am I gotten into? All right, you got to understand, I'm kind of, whatever, moving on. The next time we're introduced to him again, he's 30 years old, and his cousin John is preaching. John 1.26, John, answer, uh, John answered them saying, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you whom ye know not. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latches I'm not worthy to unloose. That's funny. He's talking about his cousin Jesus there. He said, I'm not even worthy to unlatch his shoes. Huh, that's a pretty humble man, isn't it? Matter of fact, he's even older than Jesus by six months. So we could say he's his elder. Yet he's humble. Notice verse 28. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he whom I said, After me cometh the man, which is preferred before me, for he was before me. How could he be before you, John? You were born before him. Because Jesus Christ is the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He is God himself. He is Emmanuel, God with us. That's how. Long before John was ever born, Jesus was, and Jesus is, and Jesus will be. Jesus is described here in the passage very unusually. In my mind, this is very unusual. If, if he's such a hero, and, we, and he is, don't misunderstand me, but an unlikely hero. Why you say that? Because of his disposition, it's very unlikely. He says here, or unusual, he says here that he is the Lamb of God. I don't know about you, but that's interesting. One would expect him to be described more like a lion than a lamb, really. I mean, he's supposed to be a hero and he's a lamb? I mean, what kind of leader can a lamb be? What kind of protector can a lamb be? When's the last time you saw somebody say, well, I went out and I killed a lamb? And they're all proud. David didn't go up to Saul and say, by the way, I killed a lamb and a bear. No, it was a lion and a bear. Lambs aren't, fur fur uh, you know, uh, lambs aren't, aren't tough. They're not, I mean, rough and ready, right? Mm, but Jesus said he's a lamb of God. That's how he's described. What an unusual, unusual and unlikely hero. It'd be following his baptism that Jesus would begin his earthly ministry. And what an unusual ministry he would have, too. I mean, John the Baptist finds himself bound and in shackles. He's rotting in prison for standing for truth and right. He's seeking reassurance now that Jesus is truly the Christ, the Messiah, that he's actually the offspring of David, as the Word of God said. He sends his disciples seeking after Jesus to get confirmation of the identity of Jesus Christ. And, and Jesus Christ ends up responding in Luke chapter 7, verse 22. He answers and said unto these disciples, Go your way and tell John what things ye have seen and heard, how that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and to the poor the gospel is preached. 
Well, that response, by the way, rang a bell in John's mind in the remembrance of John. He starts to think about all the scriptures he studied. He remembers back there in Isaiah as he, he thinks about Isaiah 61.1 and he says, what the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. And he says, man, that's very similar. That's very similar to, to what was said in Isaiah. And Jesus is now making sure I hear those same words. And in Luke chapter 4, again, Jesus would make sure he reminded the people in the synagogue of the same exact thing, that he was the one that was spoken of in Isaiah 61, that he was not just a mere man, he was Messiah, that he was indeed the anointed. Jesus would go on to feed the 5,000 heal the ten lepers, walk on water and calm the storms. He would, I mean, restore sight to the blind and raise the dead. Very unusual. Jesus, therefore, assures John and all others that he's not merely a man, of course. He is God with us. And although he gathers the crowds around him by healing and helping so many, his disposition is quite unusual. I mean, one would imagine that a person who could draw such large crowds and acquire such a reputation would be very tempted toward pride. Not the case with Jesus. Turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 11, would you? Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Not Jesus. He's different. He's unusual. He's an unlikely hero here. Notice how he describes himself. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. He says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Watch this. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Notice he claims to be meek and lowly. That word meek has to do uh, with being mild of tempered. One could say that he's not easily provoked or irritated. He, he's, he is willing to accept and endure injury even. He's gentle. It's not that he's weak, but he is meek. Not only that, but he's lowly. If, if, as we think about lowly, we would think about someone that has, we might even say, low self-esteem or low value. It's not that Jesus saw himself as being lacking esteem or lacking who, you know, uh, something internally lacking. No, but he was humble. He was meek. He was free of pride. He didn't elevate himself. He didn't magnify himself. He didn't need to do that. He knew who he was, and he knew why he was there. And sadly enough, in our culture, in our society, we seem to always want to elevate ourselves. We always want to exalt ourselves. We somehow need to feel like we're somebody and we're uniquely different than all others. But the fact is, is that God would have us understand who we are in him, and that should be enough for us but it's rarely enough. But Jesus Christ, he's an unlikely hero here. He has an unusual disposition. He is meek and lowly. I think about most that would be uh, heroes or those that would probably be the ones who were on the front lines and, and before the people and drawing the crowds. Most of the time they're 
not quite so meek and lowly. To me, this description appears very unusual for a hero. Then we pan over to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is praying and Judas, his disciple, having betrayed him, leads a band of soldiers to take him into custody. Look, if you would, in Luke chapter 22. I mean, Jesus is, a, 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 is an unlikely hero, and his disposition is just unusual. He, he doesn't quite fit the mold. He's described as a lamb. I mean, he's meek and lowly. I mean, this just doesn't seem to be normal. Luke chapter 22, verse 47. Notice what he says. Luke chapter 22, verse 47. Again, in the Garden of Eden, he's been betrayed by his disciple. And while he yet spoke, or spake, behold, a multitude, and he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near unto Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said unto him, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? Man, I'll tell you what, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to have been Judas. I mean, even at that moment, can you imagine? You go up to give him a kiss, and he's probably kissed him a number of times, and not in a bad way. I'm so sick and tired of our culture always trying to somehow make Jesus out to be something he wasn't. He was all man. He was God-man. There's nothing weird or unusual here. This was a way they greeted one another with a holy kiss. And so here we have a situation where now the disciple that had probably greeted the, his, his master many, many times, Jesus, good to see you. Whatever they did, you know, we see that. Remember when you as a kid used to do those crazy things because you saw it on movies like, you know, on the cheat. I don't know. Maybe you didn't see those shows. My parents let me watch all kind of weird things. <laughs> You know, different cultures greet people differently. And in this culture, this was not unusual. And so now, that same kiss that he would have given Jesus a number of times, he walks up to him, probably with some sense of confidence. He's going to give Jesus a kiss, betraying the master. And Jesus says, wait a second. <laughs> Judas, I mean, this is, I, I don't know about you, but I, I find this interesting. Betrayest thou the son of man with a kiss? I already know where you're going with this big boy. And it's nowhere good. Verse 49, when they which were about him saw what would follow, they said unto him, Lord, shall we smite with a sword? And one of them smote the servant of the high priest, uh, a, a servant, the servant of the high priest, and cut off his right ear. I mean, he, and we know who that one was. It was Peter. He was so impulsive, right? Now, we could see Peter as a hero. Man, I mean to tell you, he's getting his nose in everything. I mean, he's right up front. He's going to defend everyone. He pulls out his sword. Nobody's going to take the master. <laughs> Off with his ear. And Jesus answered and said, verse 51, Suffer ye thus far. And he touched his ear and healed him. Now, I don't know, but I don't know if it means he touched his ear, healed him, or if he just went, who needs it? Ear restored. 
I mean, I, he touched his ear and he healed him. Peter just whacked off a piece of ear and these men have come to take him into custody. These men have come to ultimately put him in a position where he would have no hope and end up on a cross and die. But no, Jesus doesn't say, oh, let's defend ourselves. I'm going to defend you. I'm going to defend myself. I'm going to take charge of the situation. I'm going to get us all out of here. No. He just says, put the swords away. Let me oh, heal that ear right there. No harm, no foul, fellas. You'd have thought he'd have defended himself. You'd have thought he'd have protected others, but instead Jesus would endure a long night of false accusations, overwhelming odds, and inhumane treatment as he, tried, he was tried for a crime that he never committed. And still, in spite of that, we read in Matthew 27, verse 12, and when he was accused of the chief priests and elders, listen to his response. He answered nothing. Matthew 27, 12. And when he was accused of the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then said Pilate unto him, Hearest thou not how many things they have witnessed against thee? Verse 14, and he answered him to never a word. And he answered him to never a word, insomuch that the governor marveled greatly. Now that doesn't sound much like a hero to me. I mean, one would have expected him to, again, put up a fight, to defend himself from those false, those false accusations and those narratives and the injustice that he was facing at the time. But quite the contrary. That isn't how Jesus handled it. He simply remained silent. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, would you turn there, please? This is a really powerful passage. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. What an unusual disposition. What an unlikely hero. In 1 Peter 2, verse 22 and 23, the Bible tells us, Peter speaking under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who did no sin, speaking of Jesus, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. There is, by the way, I, I just want to bring to your attention probably one of the greatest principles you could ever learn in your life is found right there in that passage. You say, what do you mean? What, what principle? He committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. You remember all the injustices that Jesus is enduring in this mock trial? You remember how they ultimately will spit in his face and rip out his beard and put a crown of thorns on his head and whip him with a cat of nine tails? You know how it sounded and you know how it was and yet Jesus did not try to get out of it. Jesus didn't even try to defend himself. No, he said, you know what? I'm here with a purpose. I know God has me in his hands and I'm going to commit myself to him that judgeth righteously. Come what may, I trust God. Amen. Boy, if we could learn that principle, we would save ourselves a lot of heartache and headache. We'd stop hurting so many others around us trying to get justice for ourselves. What an unusual disposition 
for a hero. I mean, he's described as a lamb. He's meek and lowly. He's quiet and, and un, unassuming. He's unwilling to defend himself and, uh, from false accusation and unfair treatment. I mean, what an unusual disposition. What an unlikely hero. But as we close, we have to, we, we can never forget why Jesus left the comforts and conveniences of heaven in order to endure the hardship that awaited him on earth. I can't forget why that went down the way it did. Because the Bible tells us he came to seek and to save that which is lost. In our text verse in Matthew 1.21, it says, And he, she shall bring forth the Son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. If we continue in the book of 1 Peter 2, it would say, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin uh, should live unto righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. See, Jesus would do nothing to escape the agony of the cross, but instead he would willingly lay down his life for you and I. He uttered not a word. But on that cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In John chapter 10, verse 17, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Turn, if you would, to Isaiah 53 as we sum it all up very quickly. Or should I say as the Word of God sums it up. What an unlikely hero. What an unusual disposition. And yet we need to remember why he submitted himself to his own creation. Why he allowed himself to suffer, bleed, and die the way he did. He had a purpose in it all. Because as our passage says, he came to save his people from their sins. And it's obvious that you and I are sinners. If we are honest with ourselves, there's no way in the world we can question that reality. And I know that we may say there's different levels of sin and I'm not as bad as him or her and I'm glad that I'm not like that person over there. But the truth is, God doesn't always view things quite like we do. The truth is, is that sin is sin in God's eyes and it still separates us from him who created us. And the fact is, is that we need someone to wash that sin away. We need someone to take our place. We need someone to pay the penalty of sin, which is death. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did on Calvary for you and I. Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He's brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is dumb. So he opened not his mouth. What an unusual disposition. What an unlikely hero this Jesus is. Described as a lamb, meek and lowly, quiet and unwilling to defend himself. 
As it says here, opening not his mouth. Why? Because he had a a destiny. That destiny led him to a cross, to death. And there he died on Calvary, paying the ultimate price for sin. A perfect Savior, laying down his precious life so that we could enjoy fellowship again with God. I wonder today, what have you done with this Jesus, this unlikely hero? Do you know him as your Lord and your Savior? Are you just playing games with God? Do you just know about him and you go through the motions and you say, well, I've been a good person and I'm trying to be a a, a religious person even. And I'm spiritual. I didn't ask that. What have you done with Jesus personally? The Bible says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He says, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. There is a time when we must acknowledge our sin and we must acknowledge the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on Calvary, realizing that he alone can wash our sin away and save us. It's not a matter of what we do. It's what he's already done that matters. And We must come to him humbly. We must too be meek and lowly and fall before him and beg for his mercy and his forgiveness and invite him into our life as our Lord and Savior. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There's heaven and sadly there's a place called hell. Today there's a cross. What will we do with the one that hung on Calvary? Because he makes the difference as to where we spend it, here or there. If you will bow before the cross, bow before Christ himself, really, because he's not on that cross any longer. But if you bow before him who took his place on that cross for you and your sin, he will wash you clean. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. He will abundantly pardon you. But you must call on him. And you must realize who's calling on him. Not Mark O'Donnell, the good guy. Not Mark O'Donnell, the family man trying to do his best to be a good dad, to be a good husband. Not Mark O'Donnell, the preacher who stands in a pulpit and proclaims the word of God. Not not Mark O'Donnell, the one that will stand up and lead a song from time to time or sing a special. No. Mark O'Donnell, the sinner deserving hell that has nothing to offer God. Not one thing to offer God And I have to come to him and I had to humble myself and say, I am nothing without you and I deserve hell. But I beg you, Lord Jesus, to wash me from my sin and come into my life and be my Savior. Will you trust him today? 
if you haven't, if you haven't put your faith in Christ, if you can't say you've done that, won't you settle that today? What an unlikely hero. But boy, is he a hero nonetheless. Come to him and let him prove it today. Father, we come to you. We thank you again for this time that we've had around your word. And Lord, again, it is our great pleasure and our great privilege to be a part of a service where you are exalted and lifted up, the choir singing, the specials today, the, just the fellowship, and now, Lord, the message. Oh, God, may the word of God truly speak to our hearts and may it bring conviction to our lives. May we see ourselves as we are, sinners without hope, without Christ. Lord, maybe, maybe there are those that have placed their faith. I believe there's a number of people that likely have invited Christ in their life. And Lord, that's a blessing. Lord, may we just show our gratitude and our appreciation every day by giving our best and living our lives on your behalf. But Lord, there may be those that have yet to receive and accept Christ today. They've never put their faith in Jesus. Lord, may you just give them the courage to step out of their seat in a moment and come forward and let someone take a Bible and show them the precious promises of the Lord Jesus Christ that they might be saved. Saved from their sin and saved from the consequences of it. What a wonderful Christmas gift that would be this season to come and to meet the Master and to be given eternal life, the gift of God. Lord, we'll thank you. We'll praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand. Every head.